feature presentation. The year was 2021. It was the Toronto <laughs> International Film Festival. A weird Toronto International Film Festival. It was one in the middle of a pandemic uh, after a cancelled TIFF the year before or a fully digital one. I forget what the hell happened. I can't believe COVID's been like four years ago, but it's still going on and all this stuff. It'll never um, go away, Matt. A young, spry Eric Marchin and a young, even young. spryer Matt Rohrbeck <laughs> uh, sat down in <clears throat> Theater 12 of Scotiabank Theater, uh, social distancing with masks on. Uh, it was September the 11th, 2021, and we sat and watched Denis Villeneuve's Dune some know it as Dune Part One. Or oh, they're going to say some people know him as Denny and Villain away, babe. <laughs> and we sat and watched uh, Dune Part One for the first time. A little bit of context. Both Eric and I, huge fans of Denny Villeneuve. Um, Eric, uh, a fan of Dune and, and has seen the David Lynch version, knows more about Dune than I. I'm going in not knowing anything about Dune, but really like Denny Villeneuve. It was one of the most anticipated films of the year. It was one of the most anticipated films of the film festival. It was playing in IMAX at Scotiabank, so it was full frame. Um, a lot of things going into it. Uh, we got out of that screening, and we're in the small minority that did not like the film at all. We didn't do um, the Dune. We reviewed the film. Uh probably infamously uh, the most hate we've gotten <laughs> online since we started this show uh, and since you were on Rotten Tomatoes and um, our, the YouTube video and, and you know, uh, on Twitter and, and, and things like that um, infamously uh, got kind of, uh, you know, it's all opinions, it's all subjective, but people get passionate about these things. Well, people um, also forget that it is subjective. Yeah. But we were Dune haters. We were Dune part one haters. I, I will say that. Uh, so the day today, not to date this, but it is February 27th, 2024. Uh, I am about a week removed of seeing Dune part two. Eric has seen the movie twice now. Um, I have rewatched Dune part one. I have appeared on the kind of funny uh, in review podcast. You're recycling jokes from one. that podcast on here. Um, How dare you, sir? Hey, I didn't do the complete same thing. I'm just kind of giving context to everyone. Um, and what do we think now? You might be surprised. Today well, we, we buckled are... under the pressure and we're cowards. <laughs> <laughs> Today we are reviewing Denny Villeneuve's Dune Part 2. Uh, we will be doing this uh, completely spoiler-free since the film has only really had one showing. They had that IMAX fan first screening on Sunday night, which Eric did attend, and then we both saw the press screening at the Scotiabank IMAX about a week ago. Um, so we'll we'll be going, you know, if you don't want to know anything about Dune, if you've managed to avoid spoilers for 60 years since the novel came out um, and don't want to know anything, you, you probably shouldn't be listening or watching anything about Dune. Uh, before you see the movie, um, but we are going to keep it vague and spoiler free uh, for this impressions. And then if you want my full spoiler filled thoughts, uh, please go watch part one uh, um, on in review at over on kind of funny podcast services or YouTube. Um, but I will be back for a Dune part two review with them this Friday, uh, which will be what's the date on Friday, March March 1st, March 1st. Yeah, March 1st on Friday at 630 p.m. Eastern 330 p.m. Pacific. If you're a kind of funny member on Patreon or YouTube um, and then it'll be up on podcast services and YouTube everywhere after that. But this will be spoiler free. Um, so Eric, yeah, I mentioned that we were haters of the first Dune. Yep. Uh, we've both revisited the first film. I know people are tuning into this cause they want to know our part two thoughts, but Dune let's, tune? let's briefly, <laughs> just very briefly. Um, I mean, you guys might've seen my Twitter. You might've listened to the kind of funny review already. Um, I've done a complete 180 on dune where you i went from coward. a hater i am man i'm a coward i'm a man of the mad of the people man mainstream matt um i i rewatched dune uh the day before we saw dune part two um and i 
I said this, that a lot goes into, you know, seeing a movie for the first time, seeing it at a film festival, these kind of things. And especially a movie as dense as Dune or like a sci-fi that's as heady and dense as Dune, where I went in not knowing the world. And that movie is a lot of exposition and world building and a lot of character names and a lot of politics and different things going on religion all this kind of stuff and and you know double crossing and playing in the shadows and all this kind of stuff that i didn't grasp it the first time and i didn't get it the first time i obviously understood its scope i also the score is incredible and like the imax uh, cinematography and all that kind of stuff from a technical level never this is kind of like my feelings on mad max fury road where i never argue the technical accomplishment of of that movie but there was something lacking and i think it was that both of us aren't really fans of the half movie right like when you split a novel in half and you end it at a certain point um, it feels a little bit incomplete and then you have to wait years uh to get the second half so it really feels like two parts of a whole so it's hard to even review a first half but when i rewatched it knowing i was getting part two the next morning um, and not, I'm not giving excuses for the movie, but seeing it a second time as well, which I think certain movies do deserve a second watch after your expectations are gone, after you sort of understand the story, but you're able to focus on some of the more nuanced or intricate uh, or complicated elements of its story. And I found myself, you know, understanding everyone's motivations, uh, connecting with the characters a lot more, uh, understanding what the Bene Gesserit were up to, what the Harkonnens wanted, what the Emperor wanted, what uh, Atreides and Leto wanted, and uh, and everything this time, where I was just locked the fuck in, and I, I understood what was happening, I was intrigued by what's happening, and I was excited for the future. So I've done a complete 180 on the movie, and then I was very excited to see part two, which we'll talk about in a moment. Eric, You're a Mohadib of the people, Matt. There you go, exactly. A voice from the outer world as well um so your experience slightly different where you went into dune part two without re-watching the first film and then you've gone back and watched uh david lynch's dune dune part one and now dune part two a second time so before we go into uh part two eric how is that rewatch for you kind of bookending it with part two and you know, first watch and, and second watch. You're still mixed on it, you said, right? Yeah. So, uh, okay. I, I equate this to a game of chess, you know, what Denny Villeneuve is doing here. Yeah. When it comes to anything, whether it's a, a, a sport or a hobby, you ultimately, or, or video games, you ultimately want to be playing yourself. You don't want to be watching. So the next best thing, if you can't play the game or you can't interact with what you're viewing yourself is to see the game actually being played. And Dune part one is essentially watching somebody take a chessboard, set it up, put all the pieces on the table and then explain what each piece is and then, and then make their first move. <laughs> make their first move and being like, oh, I'll see you ran out years. of time. <laughs> see you in a couple years. And that's what Dune part one is. Yeah. I still feel that way, except I appreciate the setup more just in terms of what it gives for part two, the runway for part two. So the progression in plot in part two, I think is what really drives home why that half of the film is more successful. I also think that the criticism that this movie deserves still the first one. Yeah. No, both of them. Oh, both as, as, as a whole, as a whole yeah. is that, and this is also why I watched the David Lynch movie again is, you know, the David Lynch movie is not successful in, how it portrays the narrative. You know, there's that whole history of, you know, Dino De Laurentiis making that film and, you know, Yordorowski wanting to make his Good version documentary. of it. You guys should R go watch that. Ridley Scott wanting to tackle, um, you know, the IP and, and so on and so forth. And eventually, you know, David Lynch being the one, um, you know, making the film that's two hours and 19 minutes. And it incorporates, you know, the, the, the basic sort of, uh, 
plot points and beats that you would expect within Frank Herbert's Dune and being an adaptation. It's not completely successful <laughs> by any means. And I think one of the biggest problems with that movie is that it kind of does portray Paul as a hero. Um, and it's also coming at a point where Star Wars was just so successful in the 70s that every studio was trying to buy up science Sci-fi, fiction properties yeah. up until you know the end of Star Wars, which was Return of the Jedi in 83, Dune came out in 84 and so you were seeing and ironically star wars inspired a little bit by dune right? absolutely like, yes yeah. yeah yeah and 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 so that you know it's it's full circle in that way in the same way that you know you have the full circle nature of you know the prophecy being told within this but you can see the fingerprints and the imprint that dune has had on so many science fiction stories you know whether they be film television other novels and so that influence has always been a big part of it. Obviously, you know, someone like Isaac Asimov has always been a very influential person. Philip K. Dick, you know, talking about uh, Blade Runner, um, you know, all of those guys kind of are major influences within the world of science fiction, heady science fiction, um, psychedelic as well. You know, there's 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 a big part of of the Book of Dune that feels like, OK, it was made at a time of, you know, Frank Herbert smoking the smoking herb some spice. Yeah. Um, and, and so like that sixties influence is there, especially with some of the colors and sort of the design and, and Denny Villeneuve brings that into both of his films, you know, or, or his one movie. Um, but if you're looking at it as a whole, you know, we just had killers of the flower moon come out, which is, you know, three and a half hours long. Mm-hmm. There could have been a version of Dune that was that long. It might not have included everything yeah. that both halves have, but at least it would have been a full sort of experience in one movie. And I think that that's the biggest criticism, especially when Denis Villeneuve is recently talking about, you know, how television is monopolizing filmmaking and changing the vocabulary of it and being more exposition based. Well, it's a little hypocritical of him to say that because television also has influenced the way that things are divided. You know, you look at the television sure. landscape of how this movie's divided, right? Into, divided. You know, you look at the Avengers films, you look at yeah. um serialized storytelling, movie. right? Like it's the it's, Hobbit movies. Yeah. Who needed we didn't for for a Hobbit book that's like this why did we need three movies? We didn't. It's just milking. People expected that too from the Lord of the Rings movies. But yeah, but the Lord of the Rings were yeah. were were three individual books, books right? Yeah. Where the Hobbit is one little children's book. And, and to your point, a novella. They made, you, they made three plus hour versions of each of those books, and then sometimes made four hour or five hour versions yeah. of those books. So why couldn't you have done that? Here, I, I agree with you on that. So uh, let's get into it. Um, let's talk about Dune Part 2, and then we'll talk about, you know, obviously the movie as a whole. So Eric, you've seen it twice now, and I know you yep. just talked a bit, but I'm going to kick it back over to you. Uh, since you it's fresh in your mind, you saw it two nights ago, you've seen it twice now. So, and, and you're coming as a hater of Dune. Uh, to now maybe, <laughs> which is very uh, funny because i grew up loving dune i know i know in college reading the book i've, I've read dune and dune messiah i kind of checked out after dune messiah. i tried right ri- reading some of messiah we'll get to that at the end of this but, uh, children um, of dune i never got to and i never got to any of his i think his kids wrote some of uh some yeah of he wrote other six of yeah. them and then his son wrote like 10 more or something yeah. so gotta keep um, it in the family gotta yeah, keep yes. those sandworms in the family um yeah so dune part two I think the strongest aspect of it, as I already mentioned, is that there's actual progression in the plot. Characters are proactive. Things are happening in this movie. Zendaya is in the film doing things. She's not just simply a fantasy that we occasionally see in interspersed dream sequences. And so with that, we're seeing the game of Dune, the, the way that it's, the chessboard was set up in the first one, is being played. Played out. It yeah. is finally, you know, there's movement, there's character work, there's a sense of humor that 
actually is surprisingly yeah. welcomed within the narrative, especially coming from Javier Bardem's character, Stilgar, um, who I think, in my opinion, is the MVP in this movie acting-wise, because a lot of people will be talking about Austin Butler's sociopathic Fade Rotha. Rebecca Ferguson, too, dude. Rebecca Ferguson's great in it as well. And I think most of the sort of – like, going back and rewatching it, the thing I really appreciated on a second viewing – was someone like Dave Bautista's performance. It's not necessarily showy in the way that I mentioned with Butler or funny or memorable like it with Rebecca Ferguson or Javier Bardem. But the thing that I really appreciated on a second watch is he's willing to show vulnerability, but also be pathetic and weak. And thinking about what he does in Dune Part 2 is something that, say, The Rock would never do ever we would never see the rock kiss somebody's shoe in a movie maybe now because he's on the downward i don't know i still think that he wouldn't he wouldn't grovel in any way whatsoever and so watching that i was like oh man dave batista really has become oh he's great this great character actor and he's seeking out interesting roles instead of just simply you know movie star action hero parts and that's what's really exciting about this as well is that it plays with expectations and chooses people for roles that maybe you wouldn't expect them to be in i i think you know very much the narrative structure of it is a little bit slow at times when you're re-watching it because you know what's to come and i think you're anticipating certain things so when you're watching it and maybe you have a moment where you think to yourself, Oh, we haven't even gotten to fade Rotha yet, or we haven't even gotten to this moment yet. So that's where you begin to feel the length a little bit. I think the second time you watch the movie where there are certain things where it's like, you're, you're, you're creating kind of um, uh, sort of like a way to kind of divide the film up in a way where you're like, or chapters within a part two where you're like, Oh yeah, yeah, this hasn't happened yet. We still probably have like 20 or 30 minutes. But the other thing that I think is really important here is that Paul Atreides is not a savior. He's not somebody that is truly here to liberate the Fremen. He feels he has that nobility and that he wants to be a part of, you know, of this culture, of this society and ingratiate himself along with his mother. Yeah. Um, But at the same time, his bloodline, his birthright, his need for vengeance fuel the strategist side in him. So he's more dueling with the savior and strategist sides of himself throughout the story and ultimately where it ends i think denny Villeneuve throughout the entire film has been telling you that you should never put all your prospects into one person you know like even though paul compared to some of the other people in this narrative that are playing for power is probably the best choice within the moment. Sure. It still he, doesn't mean he's a good choice. No, like, he's his 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 motivations are self-centered. Yeah, exactly. And he doesn't have the people that he wants to culturally appropriate and be mm. a part of their interests in mind. No, it's it's ultimately about him, like you said, whether it's yeah. this revenge or for you know, this history that he's bought into the smell of his own bullshit of, of house Atreides and, and, you know, his birthrights or whatever, like he's, he finally buys into all that kind of shit. And, and I, I like that progression of character. And that's what you're saying. That was, that was kind of missing. It was, Oh, okay. Are you there? You're gone. Power went out. (laughs) Well, (laughs) we're back. Um, after a uh, 30 to 40 minute little uh, intermission, maybe that's a sign that all movies, especially of this length, uh, should have an intermission. Uh, my power went out. Um, you might have seen that in the video, in the audio. It might have been a little uh, harder to tell. Um, but yeah, randomly, we're getting a, a little bit of crummy weather uh, here today. It's a little bit warm for February um, <laughs> in Toronto, but uh, it's like rainy today. So the power went out. 
uh, mid-episode. I forget kind of what I was talking about, but I think we were talking about Paul's character arc and how, you know, now that you have part two and part one, um, that works um, much better uh, now that you have two halves of the same whole. I don't know if I went into my actual thoughts, but like, you know, I, I we've talked about it for now 20 minutes on this show already that I've done a complete 180 on on Dune Part 1. And I think that really helped watching Part 1 immediately the night before and having an intermission of, you know, eight hours sleep in between before we got up and watched Part 2. Because uh, I think without it, I would have been completely lost again. Um, the movie does not hold your hand at all, much like the first film. It does not give you a previously on Dune and then like a recap or exposition or it anything. Kinda it kind of does a little bit uh, with uh, Florence Pugh kind of giving sure. you the, the – A little bit of, you know, Talking about the, the, the fall of the Atreides yeah, exactly. house and stuff like that. And that's kind of what even David Lynch's movie did where the beginning of that film – has this prologue of Virginia Madsen playing the princess and she talks about sure. all the houses and why um, it delivers a the- little bit of exposition. Yeah. yeah. But it, it definitely, I think, you know, I said this about the first film in, in the review with kind of funny as well, that Denny is one of those guys that it doesn't really hold your hand. He trusts his audience to either get it or not, or he just doesn't care if you don't get it um, in the point. And, and I think more directors and more filmmakers and more teams need to kind of trust their audience because I think a lot of the times the hand holding and spoon feeding of information and just bad exposition and ADR and all that kind of stuff to over explain things is, 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 is horrible and especially in big Hollywood movies. So I think what I love, I I love this movie. I really do. I love it as one gigantic whole. I find it, um, like you mentioned, Eric, you know, as, as ironically what Denny just said about TV, but movies are becoming more like TV. TV is becoming more like movies. We've said this for a long time now, especially in the serial serialized storytelling very much in the part ones, part two in the franchise filmmaking, all that kind of stuff. So even when you see this film and you're seeing, Oh, it's part two of the first book of Dune, it still very much feels like part two of a larger story. So I guess maybe that's, we can talk a little bit about that later too, of maybe being a negative or just how you know filmmaking is now and and stuff like that but i do see it as you know television on and i don't mean this as an insult i mean it as a compliment on the most gigantic scale you could possibly do you know game of thrones has a gigantic scale um there's uh, many other tv shows that have huge epic stories told out and and get more into character and 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 things like that but it's long form in comparison to a to a feature where i find this long form in the sense of that they feel like episodes of television or seasons of television in you know three hours um and because it's so serialized and that this does feel like a complete arc for for Paul from part one to part two, it still feels like Denny's playing, you know, the long game here and going, I trust that people are going to uh, enjoy this. I trust that it's going to have its hardcore fans. I trust that, you know, a regular movie going audience is still going to buy into this. Maybe they won't get all the intricate, you know, 3d chess that's being played, but like they will get this overall, you know, Messiah story, whether for better or for worse of, of, we can debate what Paul's doing, but um, I, I really think that it still feels like this is part two of a trilogy. It, it People comparing it to Empire Strikes Back, all this kind of stuff, which is the obvious kind of, you know, of course they are uh, part two of a, a, a sci-fi space movie, but uh, with a depressing, you know, story um, by the end of it. But um, I just think Denny's scope and scale, like this movie is fucking gigantic like in every sense of the word like it's massive um and that can be from a you know filmmaking perspective with the cinematography and the score and the visuals um i think it's massive from its storytelling in the sense of everything that's going on uh, of like eric said like that 3D chess that's being played out that was set up in that first film um is really being executed here and then setting up other things for the future i think 
Um, the visual look of the movie I like even more than the first one. My big complaint about that first film that I still kind of have is that I know it's intentional because most of the movie takes place on Arrakis, which is just fucking sand. Like there's not much you can it's do. Rough, it has it's rough, it's coarse, and it, it gets, gets in everywhere. everywhere. Um, but even the buildings and this kind of, you know, you're the style of the movie and the way the ships look and the buildings look, it is that kind of, you know, gray hard edges like everything kind of looks similar um there's not a lot of color in that first film and and this film i guess is in a sense the same but um i like the you know the juxtaposition with the harkonnens home world uh, is a getty prime um and, and like the black and white cinematography used there and how it transitions into that and 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 how massive all that looks and and you know give a little black and white as a treat i think uh the new additions to the cast um you know i agree with you that they're not necessarily new additions but i will say mvps are are rebecca ferguson and and uh, uh javier bardem but um i love florence Pugh. i think she's perfect um christopher walken i love seeing christopher walken a guy who's become almost a parody of himself, right? Kind of in like that Nick Cage territory of like, you can never really take him seriously, but you forget that he's also a great actor because he's become this kind of caricature and, and, you know, a larger than life personality that, you know, because of the way he speaks and things like that, that it's Christopher Walken. And I think, the further you get away from some great Christopher Walken performances, the the more you just see that caricature. So when you see him as the emperor in this movie, um, I think he absolutely crushes it. He's used just the right amount. Like he's not in a ton of the movie, um, but I think he's perfect. Um, you've already mentioned Batista. Um, uh, Lea Seydoux is great. Um, even Austin Butler, who I know we both don't really like, I think he works as fade rotha like he's in that kind of jared leto territory for me where i'm like <laughs> i don't i don't like him but in certain scummy kind of roles he he sort of works and i think he he worked in this like he um his accent comparing to elvis you see you hear a little elvis in there but you hear especially when stone. he says emperor when he yeah, says emperor, but you hear some scars guard too where i think that stuff really works <laughs> Um, you know, having Zendaya be more of a central focus in this movie. Um, I think she's good. Uh, she's still not my favorite. Even Timothy Chalamet, ironically, like the two main leads are probably like my least favorite in the cast, right? Like, uh, Chalamet as Paul, like, I know he's supposed to start out as this, you know, uh, kind of, you know, Duke, uh, young kid. He, I think he's in his teens in the first movie. Right. And, 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 you know, he's supposed to be a kid and, and I think his rise, you know, Chalamet does a good enough job, but there's still something about him that I, I, I don't know if it completely works. Um, but I, I still think it's executed very, very well. Um, I think there's more action in this film than the first one. Um, which I think is a good thing. It helps the story move along and it helps actually some of those more complicated, intricate, you know, storytelling and things like that. I think it helps move that along. Um, and yeah, man, I was just uh, completely enamored. I think these two movies put together um, are one of the most massive piece of filmmaking like uh, ever created. Like, I just think the scale of it um, is is unmatched in in anything else you'll see whether it's in a sci-fi film or just blockbuster filmmaking um it's something we talked about off air too eric that love it or hate it what nolan and, and denny villeneuve and some of these guys are doing that have risen from their indie filmmaking status to these massive gigantic hollywood blockbusters but they still retain that sense of of i'm gonna do what i want and that whether it's auteur theory and any of that shit you can argue all of that but what i i love is that singular vision and that you know studios you know warner's not doing great stuff lately um but at least with something like this they're they're giving him this big heady complicated dense sci-fi franchise and let him do his thing they let him cook essentially and like and and cook he did because i think it's executed so well i think all the hype about it being one of the best sci-fi movies ever made i think that can 
you know, it's hard. It recency bias, all that kind of stuff plays into it, but it is really that massive. And I think it, that conversation is valid. I think it's too early to have that conversation, but I think that conversation later uh, after people sit on it and, and talk about it, and especially when he's done making, whether he makes Messiah or children of Dune or passes it on to someone else. Like I definitely hope people, you know, uh, buy into this and I hope we get more of it. And, um, I absolutely loved the movie. I thought it was fantastic. Denny Villeneuve has retained the grain and he's put it back into the sands of Dune. There you go. There um, you go. Yeah, he's he's one of those filmmakers where I think, <clears throat> you know, it, it's fascinating when you have the conversation of what is his best work, because there's a lot of people that maybe have seen Enemy, which there's a fun little uh, not that it's a reference to the film, but it's sign language that says Enemy at one point very early on in the film. Um, with Jake Gyllenhaal, where that might be the closest they've come to seeing a Quebecois film of his, you know, sure. Polytechnique and Maelstrom and, and things like that. So, you know, going into this, like a lot of people haven't seen any of his earlier work. No, maybe only starting seen at Hollywood stuff, right? Yeah, probably starting at either Prisoners. Enemy or Prisoners. Yeah. Um, I think Arrival is still my favorite of of his works, just in terms of bringing it all together, in terms of what he's capable of doing um, or doing. Uh, but what I love about this movie is, you know, you mentioned the scale and the scope of of you know the the grandeur of it all, but he's able to still ground elements in sort of the intimacy of you know human life and sort of the relationships that these characters have and you know, their devotion to religion or to an ideal or something that they believe is, you know, bigger than themselves and how that also divides people. Because, you know, looking at it again, like a game of chess, you see factions within the Fremen as well, where, you know, you have people that believe right away that Paul is the chosen one that is the leader to come and bring them to paradise. And then you have people within the same commune that aren't believers, that he is an outsider. He's a foreigner. He is someone not to be trusted. Yeah. And we also see that in a sort of larger scale that the North is a little bit more um, present. They're more contemporary They're because they're, they're near industrialization and, and, they and have sort to of deal with the Harkonnen and all that kind of yeah, stuff. And, and, and even dealing with yeah. the Atreides before. Yeah. yeah and yeah. so they're a little bit more adjusted to the going ons of the universe. They've seen a little bit more where the South is barren and kind of a wasteland and all, you know, this fundamental group have are their faith and their thoughts and their, belief that something better will come so like that's even interesting and and i do agree with you with timothy chalamet like i think his performance is fine but there are a couple of moments where he's supposed to come into his own in a, in a similar way to like say al pacino in the godfather where we see michael corleone kind of at the beginning of that movie kind of rebel against his father and not wanting to be sort of incorporated into that life, but then slowly, but surely as you know, his father is nearly assassinated in that film. He becomes sort of the new Godfather where at the end of, of that movie, you really buy Pacino becoming this adult, you know, yeah. he's matured over the course of a film where with Timothy Chalamet, there's this weird thing of like being a kid in his dad's clothing. Yeah. Still, that so very feels a boyish, little off. right? Yeah. yeah and, and I don't feel like he commands the same kind of respect that Pacino does at the end of the Godfather. Not that I'm doing a one-on-one comparison, just in terms of like seeing a character start from one place yeah. and then by the end of the narrative become somebody another, else completely yeah. and feel like, Oh, you know, over the course of this, narrative we really have seen a a drastic change in who he is it's more so the movie telling you that and zendaya i also feel i think i like chani more so as the character because ultimately she's the one you should be rooting for you know Mm -hmm. she's the one who is always steadfast in her ideals she believes that you know, basically the Freemen are are commune uh, communists, you know, in a, in a way, you know, they talk sure. about the idea of, you know, doing everything for the, the sake of everybody and not just the one, you know, and her devotion to her people is what keeps her going in terms of 
why she is fighting the fight. And it's not just simply to help Paul, it's to help her people. And so that I really do appreciate because it makes you realize that, you know, what happens in the third act is maybe even more, not tragic, but devastating in terms of what she goes through. Um, But yeah, her performance is, it's fine. It just kind of feels like a little bit self-aware at times, especially in certain reaction shots that the character has. And she, even though it's a science fiction story, there is a part of it that feels almost like an old school narrative. And she's a very contemporary actor. And so is Timothy Chalamet where it doesn't necessarily fit as well, where I kind of feel like Bardem and Ferguson and Josh Brolin and all these people kind of are more integrated or naturally integrated into this kind of, almost biblical epic on the scale of like a Ben-Hur or Lawrence of Arabia, mm-hmm. where we kind of understand that, you know, these kind of are the um, legendary actors. And and obviously, you know, there's a Shakespearean element to it as well. You mentioned Christopher Walken. His performance very much reminded, reminded me of King Lear, where you have somebody that's been on the throne for so long and he kind of wants his daughter to take sort of you know the the steps in order to become the next empress and he's kind of curmudgeon and surly in his ways but he never you know he never has to really exert his own efforts in order to get anything done and that's like the ultimate sort of display of power where you know you never show any weakness or sign of fear and you are basically in complete calm cool collected control and that's what Walken does so well. And it's just also just funny to think that Walken, you know, was in the Fatboy Slim Weapon of Choice music video, which references Dune, walk without rhythm, you won't attract the worm. So, you know, like things like that were like, I'm sure that wasn't like the main reason why Denny cast, you know, Christopher Walken. You always <laughs> get an actor, you yeah. know, Jose Ferreira was, you know, the the the, the emperor in, in Lynch's version. I, I think what Lynch's version also you know, you talked about this before where Denny Villeneuve isn't spoon feeding you Lynch's version is, or the version, the theatrical version is because, you know, a, a lot of that film, Dino De Laurentiis and the producers and, you know, whether it was through screen test screenings or things like that, they didn't have faith in the material. Yeah. And so they felt like, okay, well, people are coming into this that don't really know what Dune is. And this is back in 84. So, you know, there was a little less time between, you know, 1965 and now. Um, so you had a lot of ADR of people explaining things, or like I mentioned, the Virginia Madsen um, prologue where she is like staring at the camera and being like, Arrakis, also known as Dune, is the place yeah. that everybody But you wants got that a go. lot, and, and I think in sci-fi, like Blade Runner, the original yeah. cut too, with the voiceover. And, and then like Ridley Scott too, re-releases right? yeah. it as the director's cut, yeah. which which kills all of the voiceover narration yeah, by Harrison Ford, who didn't even want to do it to begin with. And you can tell in that voiceover, it's just kind of like, oh, I, I you know, almost and, apathetic in the way that it's delivered. And I'm not saying audiences now will fully grasp this, which is why I think, you know, we're a testament of, or uh, me specifically, I'll speak for myself, of that if you don't get it the first time, I urge you to maybe give it another shot. And because it is dense and there's a lot going on and it it might not just be your thing either. And it's not, uh, that's totally okay. Cause it is, you know, a lot. And I tried reading Dune Messiah, which I won't talk about at all, but I got 20 pages in and I'm like, Oh my God. Okay. Like there's a, there's a lot of terms thrown at you, um, that aren't, you know, they're made up terms and made up people. And it's just, uh, you can kind of, once you really think about it, especially in these two movies with part one and part two, kind of assign how you want to remember things and how you see that 3D chess playing out and who's actually controlling it and what the Bene Gesserit want and what the Emperor wants and, and you know, what the Harkonnen want and how that's all playing together. But what, you know, Paul wants and what the Fremen want and all that kind of stuff. Like there's a lot there and then it gets even more and more complicated as you go on. But um yeah it, it's it's definitely not for everyone but i think even if you go in and just know the simplest thing of paul's journey um the rest of the stuff you can either what i love about it and and on rewatch is that 
you can follow the simplest form of the story and maybe you just don't get everything else. And then they don't spoon, spoon food, spoon feed you the rest of it. Um, but you can go in read more about it, get the lore drops online, read the books if you want to continue. It's like there, there's so much there that if you want to know more of it, it is there. And sure, that's secondary, you know, uh, reading and other things after you see the movie. But um, I kind of like that too. Like the, it is such a rich, like they've done such a good job with the world building, I think, in the first two movies um, um, in a way that feels intelligent and, 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 you know, there, of course it has exposition and things like that, but, uh, I think they've done a good job of making you want to know more, but giving you enough information to be intrigued throughout. And I think that leads into kind of what Villeneuve, it seems like he wants to do another one, right? Like, it seems like he wants to do Messiah at least. Um, and I know we're getting the Bene Gesserit, uh, uh, show, later this year which i'm shocked is actually happening any jesuits but, and the jets um, yeah <laughs> elton john song <laughs> and you see stuff in this movie very much like part one where he's setting things up there's actors who are only in one sequence there's you know even you could argue with with florence Pugh being the almost in the zendaya role in the, in the first movie of she's in more of it i guess but she does very much set the film up and then show up kind of closer to the second half and the end of the movie and it seems like it's more set up for her character than anything right so it is playing this like i mentioned earlier this long game of of really going i hope this works because i want this to be a franchise that continues and well even if she becomes a, a character in the Bene Gesserit show because she mentions being a pupil of the Bene Gesserits and you could, yeah, but that's 10,000 years in the past or something, but you could build up to it though. Right. Like you could, if you do multiple seasons of a show, you could take place in like different centuries. 5,000 years. Yeah, of course. And like, that's where you could set up, you know, uh, Lady Jessica and just all a younger emperor. Yeah. And also the one thing that this doesn't do that, that the, the Lynch film does spoon feed to you and, and the book does tell you a little bit more is some of the motivations to why the emperor um, basically betrays uh, Duke Leto. And that's partly because Leto. Isn't he like gaining power? Cause he's so. Well, like, yeah, yeah. Cause, cause Leto, Leto's, Leto's power is growing partly due to his approach to being an emperor. He's more. As 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 Walken says in the trailer, that his father was weak because he has a heart, and yeah. so he's 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 trying to become a leader for the people, and you know that's why the emperor is basically going Scared to him, right? sabotage yeah. him, assassinate yeah. him, and, and sabotage the and, and, and kill off that bloodline. But what it also doesn't really get into too deeply, and maybe this could happen in the Bene Gesserit series or another spinoff series if they decide to go down that route, is kind of explain a little bit more into detail the relationship that that uh, that Leto had with the Emperor because it's almost father-son-like in, in a way. Um, and it's almost like you know um, the Emperor felt betrayed by Leto in terms of Leto becoming more popular. Um, and, and you even see those kind of dynamics between how, you know, family members sort of use their children as pawns in this game as well. Um, you know, you, you see, um, you know, Ferguson kind of fanning the flame of fanaticism for Timothy Chalamet's Paul, but then you also see Stellan Skarsgård's, uh, Vladimir, uh, Harkonnen or Harkonnen, um, you know, basically baiting both of his nephews into sort of taking over Arrakis and sort of pitting them against each other, but also uh, against him, but kind of being like the silent partner and wanting to become the emperor and doing it in a way that's nefarious and what you'd expect from, from a character like that. So there's all these power dynamics in play. And the other kind of interesting thing about this movie is that the spice melange in the first one is very pivotal to you know the universe and whoever owned it's like in scarface when you have the spice melange you have the power and then um with this it's there but because you're seeing it from the freeman's point of view the most valuable thing to the freeman is water yeah you know and and so like the way that they cultivate water um 
can sometimes be very disturbing but at the same time it shows you like what different cultures what different groups value over others you know like the basic life necessities for the freemen are water food religion um their people where the industrial side of it with you know the atreides with the harkonnen um you know with the emperor like all of this thing is based on you know profit and power and just how important that's but i do agree with you that the movies don't like it it it's clear that it's a very important resource for the entire galaxy, right? Like, but it, you don't really realize that like none of these people can basically function without it. Right. In the entire galaxy. It's like, I, I think, isn't it how like the Bene Gesserit get their kind of uh, yeah. abilities? It's how you use um, transportation travel. It's how uh, it's like, literally it's what makes everyone work. Yeah. And if without it, the whole galaxy would crumble, right? Because everyone's addicted to it or everyone needs it for their particular abilities that they, that they have that without it, it everything would you know, go to shit. So it's almost like this necessity and that's what you get this very nuanced, intricate, you know, plot. And it doesn't necessarily, again, spoon feed you any of that. You can go back and read the book and get more context or look it up and things like that. And I'm sure as we get into Messiah, if it happens, which I hope it does, that they'll go into, um, all of that. And I don't think that's going to be Denny's next movie though. I, no. I honestly think he like, says I, he's writing it. He's talked about it. Sure. So. I, I think actually he's almost finished writing it or at least like he's at a place where he kind of feels like at least a first draft is done but the thing is you know denny spent so much time on these on this one movie that i remember him talking on the roger deakins podcast where he was saying that it would just be nice to make something that you don't have to build an entire world from scratch where you can kind of just go in and make something that maybe is a little bit more you know, cut and dry where, yeah, he's built the world of Dune now and, you know, has set it up for, you know, future adaptations and, and maybe to bring on uh, filmmakers that he's interested in seeing their take on it when he kind of eventually leaves, because he's also got films like Cleopatra and Rendezvous with Rama. And if he does Rendezvous with Rama, that is also, I mean, Arthur C. Clarke is another, you know, sci-fi author whose work is so heady and dense and strange that when you know you read the plot synopsis for that you think to yourself okay this is something that could only be made if you have the cachet to do it because it's not something that you know a first-time filmmaker or somebody that has a great vision for it can just simply you know walk into the studio and say i want to make this because there was a time when morgan freeman bought the rights to um uh, the, the the film version of it and he wanted David Fincher to direct it and it just never happened because it was just so much of an undertaking so um, you know maybe he wants to do that but that's also a film that'll probably take years to to make and design and and sort of you know contemplate the philosophical and also the sort of more practical elements within the genre so maybe he tries to find something like a Sicario or, or something like that. That's a little bit more on planet earth um, in the meantime, you know, and, or something smaller, but you know, you, you look at like what Nolan's talked about recently where like, he's afraid to kind of like go back to do something that's indie because he's been working so long in this sort of blockbuster hemisphere that he's afraid that, you know, if he goes back, he'll never be able to return because it's so hard to get to that point. Um, and, but and I de- think I, I said this to you off air too when we were talking of being like they're at this point now where even the smallest thing they do is still going to be massive. Like, sure, I absolutely. Like- but 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 like think about Nolan doing something on the scale of Memento again. You know, like that's not going to happen. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, I, I I agree that I think no matter what, like I think Oppenheimer is as close you're going to get to something like that, right? Sure. Like, no, and I, it still I agree. Cost a hundred million dollars, and it it it's. I think no matter what they do, it's going to be on a gigantic scale, even if it's a smaller, more intimate character story or something like that. Like, um, I'm with you. Like, I'd like to see more directors do something 
you know, smaller, give them $50 million. You can still do like a, a small movie. And or even a hundred million budget. dollars, which doesn't seem yeah. that much which, anymore which is, for these yeah. guys. You for know, Oppenheimer, like, that's what Oppenheimer is. Or the is. prestige. Like yeah. give, give Nolan the, the, the budget that he had for the prestige to do something like that. Like that I'm sure wasn't a small budget, but when you look at the prestige now, compared to his other films it's very modest in terms of its oh totally and, it's storytelling and in denny know? for like if we get a prisoner's an enemy or a sicario from him like i'm i'm a thousand percent down for that right but yeah. like like it, since arrival he's been doing these gigantic sci-fi movies which is fine i love them like i you know his i love his aesthetic i think he's one of the best filmmakers working today um proud that he's canadian he loves your shoes yeah that's something i forgot to bring up too yeah like i've had two interactions with denny villeneuve uh one i interviewed him for enemy oh there you go (laughs) thank god we're celebrating this with some balloons um i he complimented my shoes in an interview that i did with him for enemy super nice man you can probably still find that interview i wanted to clip it out and i'd probably be embarrassed man if i watched any of those tribute well you've also now. interviewed leah Sadu, um, so that was the same year don't go watch that <laughs> uh please um i was very like it was my first ever uh gig with tribute that year at tiff but like i was i remember loving enemy and 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 i loved uh prisoners as well um same tiff um so i interviewed him for enemy he complimented my shoes. Then remember when we saw first man at Tiff? Oh yeah. And I sat beside him the whole time. Uh, and I wanted to vomit during that movie. Uh, I, we, were, we were very close. Oh yeah. Yeah. I met him once for the critics choice awards when he had a rival there. And one of the producers who I interviewed on the red carpet at, at the after show um, was kind enough to introduce me to. Yeah, him. I remember and, you telling me this, and yeah. we talked briefly about arrival, but we also talked about, uh, maelstrom um about because that's the other thing about denny villeneuve movies is that you can always count on him to have weird sort oh, yeah. of Talking sort of pers- something or <laughs> animals that are kind yeah. of like sort of d- distorted or creepy so we talked about the um talking fish in maelstrom for a little bit yeah. and it was kind of nice like talking about like the cbc at in an la event so um yeah, yeah so it's like stuff like that where uh he's all like i'm i'm I think Blade Runner 2049, I like more than the Dune movies as a whole. Yeah. And it, I, I think he kind of nailed the, the the tone of that film and the world building that was already presented by Ridley Scott. And you, you, you got the sense of like, he knew what he was doing with kind of playing with the mechanics of, of what worked within the canon and what wasn't canon, because that's also tricky with something with blade runner because it's like okay well what's going to be acknowledged and not acknowledged because of the director's cut the theatrical cut the final cut like all these versions so with that movie it just felt like this was something like he was born to make because obviously ridley scott was a huge influence on his own work um with with the dune films i i think like part two or the second half of this movie is a much more kind of exciting experience and usually i like i don't mind like i've always been a fan well i don't mind um like it talking about slower movies or films that don't necessarily progress plot because plot isn't necessarily my main focus when i watch movies it's it's usually like the last thing but with something like this or like comparison to the lord of the rings movies i out of that trilogy my favorite is the fellowship i like all of that world building i like the camaraderie with the characters i never felt that with part one of dune i never felt the camaraderie maybe with the exception of um jason momoa but there wasn't really it it just kind of felt like it was a machine that was setting things up to get to this film yeah and so once we get to the second half it's like okay well the groundwork is done let's now move on to tell the story let's get to where this story is ultimately going and it does and it's very successful in that way and you know ridley scott and martin scorsese and and guys like that that are making those kind of movies now or still making those movies those films that are 100 million dollar movies aren't going to be around forever you know they're in their 80s now so you know you're reliant on Velnov and Christopher Nolan and directors like that to continue 
to make these kinds of films, these, you know, large scale productions that have a certain effect on you when you're watching them theatrically, when you're watching them in an IMAX theater, I think it doesn't you know, just feel like a content farm, right? Like, no, it feels like an event. It feels like, yeah. okay, this is why you go to an IMAX screening of yes. something because this is, that's the best way to see oh, Dune part absolutely. two. Yeah. You know, you, you, you get the full majesty of what is coming out of the screen and what Velnove intended. And it feels like something that, you would have like your your parents would have watched when they saw or your grandparents would have watched when they saw Lawrence of, the, of Arabia the first time or you know the closest comparison now to us would probably be the Lord of the Rings movies where I agree you know, the yeah. first time you watch those you realize oh this is what you know the big screen experience can do because there's nothing wrong with watching a movie at home you know on a on a good sound system with a good sound system and a good screen you know i know paul thomas anderson's talked about that where like a lot of films you kind of almost come across in, in the days of cable you would find things as programmed on turner classics or sure. space channel or something like that but when you see something like this presented in a way that's made for the theatrical you know, the theatrical experience, yeah. experience you understand why you know, a filmmaker like this does what he does or she does or they do. And so, you know, you, you appreciate that more. And I think we appreciate, even though we didn't like Dune the first time around, I think the one thing we both said is that, you know, we understood like why a movie like that is being made. And it's oh, just, totally. it's also just unfortunate that a filmmaker like Denis Villeneuve, even more so than Christopher Nolan, probably still has to fight a little bit more to get things like this made even when they're successful because even though Denny Villeneuve's working on Dune Messiah it hasn't been officially no greenlit yeah. yet right so it, it will let's be real it, it will because it it's will. going to do yeah. well like, I think it'll do better than the first movie I have this weird feeling it's gonna have that Oppenheimer effect or that kind of not necessarily maybe Top Gun Maverick or anything like that but I do think it'll be that movie Tom Cruise on a worm that'll perform <laughs> pretty well it's opening weekend it has a huge budget at almost 200 million but i think the word of mouth and you know people going you have to go see this in a theater people comparing it to one of the best sci-fi movies ever made comparing it to empire strikes back comparing it to whatever and and, and it only saying, being available in the theater because that was yeah, the other thing that was different one, is yeah. that the first one was you know the beginning of hbo max which is and now we were just in a max. pandemic still too right yeah like, so now the only way to see this movie for the time being is theatrical. So there's no date and day and date window of opportunity where somebody can just watch this at home. They have to go out. So it probably will make exponentially more money because of that. And I think uh, we haven't like, I'm sure this, we don't need to get into award stuff. It's too early, but we did technically go to an award screening of this. Um, yeah. And I think that's where that comparison to the Lord of the Rings movies, I feel like, you know, it, it, it is big budget Hollywood blockbuster filmmaking from a former indie director that is on such a gigantic scale with this large scale storytelling with a bazillion characters and, and, and things like that. And it's, uh, it's equally applauded by you know regular moviegoers and critics and like it's almost something that like brings everyone together weirdly even though it's like this dense heady i I think this is more complicated than lord of the rings but also if you're not into fantasy um lord of the rings could be hard to follow and and hard to keep up with and stuff too so i think that comparison uh, is apt and and that's why i see messiah like even if i i really do think this movie will perform well but i really I, I do think that they'll they envision it as this trilogy and that they'll make Messiah and then after that maybe it gets passed to someone else and they continue with Children of Dune and anything like that. But like um, And Messiah will be the true test because if, if people think that this movie is esoteric or or hard I to know. get into, yeah. Dune Messiah is so cerebral. Um, it and it makes is... Paul even more unlikable too, right? Because yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the he, whole point, yeah, right? Like, and the the intro of the book even has from Frank Herbert's son, like doing like an apology, being like, "Well, not an apology, but like context, when this right? when this first came out, people hated it." And well, it's don't worry though. Children of Dune is great. <laughs> it's like um, it's <laughs> like well, okay. Um, and I think it was reappraised afterwards, right? Much like a, a lot of these things, even Blade Runner and, and other you know, sci-fi movies. I hope that uh, Bradley Cooper gets to play Frank Herbert and uh, then cries on a couch 
with his actual children there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because it, yeah, no, no, it, Dune Messiah, like, I no I spoilers. Got, I, no, no, no. Like I got that, through. Yeah. No, I'm just gonna say I got through it when I was in high school, but it was such an arduous reading experience. Yeah, that it turned me off completely from going into Children of Dune. Um, so I, it's weird. It, that film is going to be really interesting to see how and if Velnove can crack that material because it's alienating in a way that it makes the hero even more antagonistic, but also some of the imagery is harder to explain without explanation or exposition. And you kind of have to go with it as more of a vibe than necessarily analytically sort of breaking it down. And it's the same thing. I mean, children of Dune has that as well, but, but it's just like children of Dune kind of feels like it's almost like, okay, let's, you know, wipe off the 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 chess table and start over start again over, a little yeah, bit, like a soft reboot, yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, but like. but that's interesting as well because you look at how you know Dune has been adapted over the decades. Um, you know, the TV movies, the TV miniseries, yeah. you know, the Lynch film, the even you know it never happened, but you know, watching Yordarowski's Dune, the documentary and, and, and seeing what Yordarowski was going to do. And then, you know, Ridley Scott talking about it in the dark days, Blade Runner documentary that, you know, that's the movie he wanted to make before his brother passed away. And then when he kind of came back, um, you know, he, he went with, uh, Philip K. Dick's, uh, even Android's dream of, of, yeah. uh, sheep. So, yeah. So it, it's, it's one of those things where I think this is the most commercial version of this material oh, you'll sure. you'll ever and get. Even then, <laughs> but even then, it's not yeah. going to be everyone's cup of tea. And I think even the people that like this movie as a whole might have a hard time with what with Dune Messiah. Messiah is. Interesting. I'm gonna try to get through the book, and I'm excited, and I hope this continues. Are you really are you do. are you just reading it, or are you gonna do an audio version? I originally was just gonna read it, but I think the audio version might help me. Like, yeah, because I, I found myself rereading. I, I did do that too, and it was it didn't help because it just made me go. Uh, I like just blinked a bunch of times and had to reread paragraphs, and then I'm like, it starts with a interview with a historian. Uh, an in-universe historian talking about it. And then it goes into an excerpt from something the historian wrote, like a textbook. And then I'm like going, it's just like, and they're throwing out all these terms and words that I read some to, uh, to Nevis and in bed. And she was just laughing. Cause I was like, what the fuck does this sentence mean? And like, <laughs> I was like, and I'd read her a sentence and she's like, that is a lot. And I'm like, yeah, it's a lot. I had to put it down after 20 pages, but I want to get back to it. Anyways, uh, let's end here. It's great. You should go see it. Watch part one and part two back to back. I know it's like a seven hour, um, you know, commitment, but I really do think it's worth it. Um, I wish we could go more into detail, but we're trying to keep this, you know, spoiler free as possible. Like I mentioned, if you want my spoiler filled thoughts, I will be on in review kind of funnies in review this Friday, six 30 Eastern three 30 Pacific. If you're a member, uh, over on kind of funnies, Patreon or YouTube, um, it'll be up on podcast services and, uh, YouTube, uh, Friday night at some point. Um, and I'll be talking full spoilers with, uh, Nick, Tim and Kevin about the movie. So I'm very excited for that. Um, I'm going to give this film, uh, now that I've seen both halves, I'm reviewing the whole film in this and I'm going to, I've gone from two stars for the first half up to, uh, five. Cause I'm just, I, I can't have people hate me. It's no, I'm kidding. I just actually gen- genuinely really really love the movie now so i'm getting, gonna give it a five you you drank the water of life and you are yep. that blue glo- kool-aid that your, blue your eyes Kool-Aid. are glowing blue yeah. and you're ready to sniff that spice and hang out with the herberts uh <laughs> hanging out with the herberts uh yeah so if i'm looking at this as a whole film to give a rating for I'll probably give it a four out of five. I, I I honestly think the second half is superior. And actually, the, and, and I don't mean this because you're going to hate me, Matt, for saying this. Um, 
I think that this is as a whole is better than the Avengers movies and that uh, Denny Villeneuve is a better filmmaker than the Russos. Well, I mean, uh, but, I'm not going to argue with that. I mean, but I think like what I I'm looking at it from the comparison, like Infinity War Part One. And part no, 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 no. But what Endgame. I'm saying is that I think I found more to focus on in Endgame in terms of character development. Again, sure. motivations, plot, like it moved forward where Infinity War felt like it was also a lot of table setting. And so part ones feel like that, man. Deathly Hallows yeah. part one, I think is awful. Um, and I think Deathly Hallows part two, because it's the payoff is great. So like, it's, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And the Hobbit three is amazing. Yeah. Uh, so I'll give it four out of five, just because I think like that first one, while I appreciate it more within the context now of watching it as a whole and seeing Velnov's version of Dune, there is still something where the second half, I think, is stronger than the first. Cool. Well, thank you all for listening or watching. Uh, we really do appreciate it. Um, please go check out our Letterboxd, which is untitled underscore movies. You'll be able to find all of our podcasts and reviews, especially our guest appearances, anything up there, as well as our ratings, our most anticipated films of the year list. You can go back and listen to that podcast on this channel here, but you can also look at the letterbox list. Um, we also have a review up right now for drive away dolls. You guys can check out and we'll have more, uh, reviews in the future. Um, it's starting to ramp up a little bit now that we're at the end of February. I feel like what Dune Charlotte is Rampling ramp yeah. ramp up. Ah, there we go. Put your hand in the box. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so uh, we're going to rampling up for the rest of the year. Uh, it's kicking off with Dune part two. And then it, it uh, every couple weeks we'll probably have a big movie now. Like it feels like we make this joke every year that the summer, the summer movie season starts early and earlier uh, early and earlier. Um, so we'll have, uh, I know it's a little bit of a slow start to the year, but we'll be uh, having more reviews very, very soon. Um, we'll also have a new episode of the untitled movie podcast. The main show, Eric and I are going to talk about like vacation spots you should go to and places we've been before. If you're a movie fan, uh, that'll be a blast. So keep an eye out for that. Um, and as always, my name is Matt Rohrbeck. You can find more of my work around the internet, but mostly at untitledmoviepodcast.com. And you can follow me on all those social medias at Matt Rohrbeck. Yeah, and you can find more of my work on rogerstv.com slash cinemascene. There's also an interview coming up with Deanne Whalen uh, right here for 500 Days in the Wild. Um, and as Matt said, like it does seem like each and every week uh, there is a new big movie coming out and we're only in March. So uh, buckle up and get ready to go because the spice is life. Until next time, wiggle your grandfather worm and head over to IMAX and see Dune Part 2. Bye, everybody.